Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Achieving Christian Thought podcast. I'm your host, Brian. Hey, thanks for listening in. This is Robert. Hey, I'm Zach. Join us for each episode as we apply the gospel to dive into the inner workings of the Christian faith. Are you agnostic or atheist and want to understand Christianity better? Want to learn more about Jesus? Discuss the differences between the modern and early churches? or maybe explore some of the Bible's most interesting characters, then we hope you'll join us in Achieving Christian Thought. All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. Thanks for joining us on another episode. Uh, hello, Robert. Hello, Zach. How are you guys doing tonight? Doing hey, well. Doing well. Doing well. How are you doing? Yeah, pretty good. Another Ready for another exciting uh, episode. Uh, so. Um, yeah, we've been kind of going through the Old Testament a little bit, and uh, we've uh, we've hit on some um, kind of talking about some of the lore, some of the the canon in the Old Testament, uh, kind of what the Old Testament was used for, some arguments against the Old Testament as it applies to Christianity. But uh, I think we're going to still stay with the Old Testament tonight, but pivot a little bit. So what do you guys have in store for us uh, tonight? Tonight, we are actually going to travel off the Old Testament a little bit and stretch a little bit into the New. We're going to be talking about some of the uh, prophecies that are in the Jewish Old Testament that talk about the Jewish Messiah that actually point to Jesus of Nazareth. Well, very fun. So yeah, um, I'm I'm looking forward to diving in. So uh, yeah, if you guys want to kick us off and get started, let's do it. All right, Sir Roberto, we will let you begin this journey today, tonight. All right. So to begin with, um, we're talking about um, maybe pinpointing some particular examples in Scripture to talk about the fact that um, these prophecies point to Jesus. Now, for anyone out there who isn't really sure what exactly we're talking about. Just a quick overview of all of it before we zoom in more. Basically, the idea was the Jews had their scriptures. It was uh, from Genesis to Malachi. And, of course, there were some groups that had more or less books than others, depending on their politics or the theology. But that was uh, their canon, and that's a topic for another episode. It was their group of established, inspired texts that they believed was from God. And these texts actually started slowly forming a picture over time as you read them back to back and got a bigger and bigger picture of where their God was headed with Israel's history. They were actually getting the impression that something was wrong with the world, that God's ultimate plan through Israel was to bring someone, somebody who was going to set things correctly. And there was a lot of debate among Jewish scholars and theologians and rabbis throughout the centuries from Old Test- late Old Testament days into the time in between the Testaments as uh, the Jewish nation continued to be subject to one ruler after another after another again. They started to get this very physical or political view of who the Messiah would be. So to say that he is going to rescue Israel and there are even hints in the scripture itself that he's going to rescue not just them, but the whole world, which is practically unheard of in any ancient nation's literature. It was all about themselves for the most part. We're, we'll dive into that a little bit more. But this person is going to save everyone. And they started to get the idea that, well, 
if this is uh, who this person is going to be, if he is a redeemer for Israel, then it must be obvious that this guy is going to be some kind of warrior king that's going to hop on a horse and physically release us from Rome or from Babylon or Persia, whoever happened to be over them at the time. And when Jesus of Nazareth shows up on the historical scene, that is Rome. Uh, Emperor Tiberius is over the, the nation and He's put his puppet kings into place and his governors to make sure that Israel is obeying the laws of Rome as they're underneath the sword. Everywhere a Roman Jew would go, and by Roman Jew I mean the Roman era of the Jews, anywhere they would go in Palestine there would be constant Roman soldiers patrolling up and down the streets, uh, threatening to, to quench violence with violence if need be. And so every time you'd leave your house, you would have a constant reminder that you did not belong to yourself, that you were underneath the foot of somebody more powerful than you. So they started to daydream about this guy from the scriptures. That they, In their minds, this person was going to rise up and crush Rome with the power of the sword, and God was basically going to rise up another Samson, crush his foes with mighty strength beyond any mortal man. And of course, they got excited about the idea, but what they don't understand and what the New Testament realizes in the prophecies is that God wasn't really pointing to someone to redeem Israel politically from Rome. That's too temporary. God had gotten rid of Rome in the timetable that they wanted him to do it in. Someone else would have simply come with a bigger stick, bigger firepower, and they would have subdued the Jews again. Their Messiah would have to constantly keep coming back keep fighting off one empire after another for all, for all time or the, the messiah would have to be someone somehow eternal he would have to be able to live forever in order to rise up and take out each empire as it constantly came up in history and just the thought of that to be honest i mean just is this is just me speaking just the thought of that in and of itself is kind of exhausting just the idea that you know this conflict never has to end. It's just, we're just going to have a strong arm to knock the oppressor back again and again and again. Mm-hmm. And Israel had already experienced that so much through non-Messianic human beings that God rose up. They were hoping for this end-all, be-all, but they weren't looking past you know the end of their own lifetimes at all. They had this very, very narrow view of things, which is definitely just human nature taking its course any any people group that were in their situation would have reacted the same way and with the same hopes but what we're going to jump into and demonstrate from the text without reading the text it would put some people to sleep but we encourage anybody to look into these things for themselves that we're going to talk about tonight these prophecies in themselves really do point to the new testament's shocking twist in the plot is this Messiah was not a political hero, but he was a spiritual one because they had lost sight of the true fact of a pain and suffering in the world. And we've talked about that on another episode before, but it is a, it has a spiritual origin. Therefore it has to have a spiritual solution in order to see it, see it through because if it had been too political or too physical, it would have taken care of some of the symptoms of sin in this world, but it would have never taken care of, actual thing that was lying at the very root of that with that which god could see from an internal perspective and so god when god sent his messiah it wasn't somebody to attack rome with a mighty hand and a sword it was someone who would actually submit to rome die willingly 
which was the very definition of weak in many people's eyes. And yet he would use that to liberate the very souls of human beings and it would change history forever. And so we're going to kind of bounce uh, different prophecies back and forth. Um, now, of course, we couldn't cover all of them. For those out there who might be interested in knowing it, you could probably do a quick internet search in today's day and age and pinpoint the exact data. But there are hundreds of prophecies about the Messiah. And I forget his name, but there is a math professor. And this is another thing you might be able to Google and find his exact name. But uh, there was a math professor who actually took his math class through these prophecies. And all he was doing was trying to illustrate the, uh, the numerical fact of chance. Uh, you walk into a casino and you calculate how many, how, how, what your chances might be. And if you're better at that than others, you might be great at uh, stacking your odds against people in a certain game of chance. But what he was wanting to do to illustrate this concept to his classroom, this professor, was he was actually inviting his class to look at each of the prophecies of the Messiah that the Christians actually took up as someone who uh, would fill, fulfill these prophecies. And they found out that the numerical chances, the odds of one person even fulfilling, I think it was eight of those yeah. prophecies, was absolutely astronomical. And the report they gave to the public, they said they, they tr tried to use an illustration to convey numbers that could go over most people's heads. And they said that the numerical odds that this number was giving them they said it was the exact same odds of having um the whole state of texas covered in tiles and trying to walk through the state of texas you can only pick up one tile once you pick one up you can't go again and the odds of getting one tile with a red dot on it if they put only one tile in there with a red dot your chances of walking through there, picking only one up, and it just happening to be the one with a red dot throughout all the state of Texas is identical to the odds of this person fulfilling all eight of those prophecies. Yet Jesus of Nazareth historically not only fulfills those eight, but every single one of the prophecies that have been uh, recognized by Israel as being mess messianic. But, um, yeah. And so since I kind of launched this intro, I'm going to turn it over to Zach first if he has a particular prophecy he's dying to give, especially since I don't want to be the one to jump in and steal something he was dying to talk to, get, give him that chance first. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, so really quick, um, one of the beginning prophecies about Jesus, or, you know, even before you have an idea, a concept of the fact that... Um, there's going to be a redeemer. Um, a lot of times, people think, you know, where where are some of the where are some of the uh, uh, prophecies at, and where do they begin, and how do they begin? Um, and if you can imagine, like a dartboard, um, and like say, like for instance, um, you have the uh, a very vague prophecy in the very beginning of the Bible where first uh, Adam and Eve. Uh, eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, you know, just kind of back up a little bit, kind of give some background to it. So, um, as we mentioned before, you know, there's uh, a garden. Adam and Eve are in it, and and they're having a good time. Serpent shows up, imps Eve. She eats of the fruit, and then um, 
He gives the fruit to Adam, and he also eats of it. God comes on the scene and basically calls out to Adam, where are you? You know, and they, they kind of shuffle out, and they say, we hid because we were naked, because they ate of what they should not have ate of. They ate of the tr- knowledge of good and evil, the tree from knowledge of good and evil. And so they got this knowledge of who, not not necessarily who they are, but they have knowledge of the fact that they were naked. Whereas before, it was like there was an innocence about them that they didn't have like the knowledge of, hey, the fact that running around naked could be wrong or could be seen as wrong. But whenever they ate of that tree, they ate of that fruit, that knowledge came into them was birthed, so to speak, into them and realized that, hey, we're naked and we should be ashamed of this nakedness. We need to cover ourselves. And so they sowed fig leaves. I say all that to say um, when God comes on the scene, you know, he he confronts man, hey, what'd you do? And man points to his wife, says, hey, look, the lady, you you did this. And, And then the lady points to the serpent, said, well, the serpent deceived me. And one of the things, one of the first prophecies given talks about, and this is in, this is like the like day, I don't know if you could say day one, but at least day one of the fall, the very first prophecy comes and it says that of his seed, um, now this is paraphrase, this isn't quote, quote, uh, but basically God's seed and Satan's seed, or one, excuse me, um, women's seed and um, uh, Satan's seed would war with each other, and that Satan would bruise the heel, but he, the the seed of woman, would crush his head. So, in this very beginning, you have a prophecy that talks about um, there being something wrong with our world, and then there, there's some sort of supernatural conflict. And there'll be a momentary victory from the enemy, but then the the uh, seed of woman will come and crush the head of the enemy. And so you have like a basic idea of this uh, spiritual conflict. Um, again, you know, this is like a basic. Um, not a whole lot is given, not a whole lot of detail is given, but it does let us know a few things. One, that it have to be of a human race. And um, uh, two, that there's going to be a, 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 a battle, so to speak, between good and evil, between uh, the woman's seed and Satan's seed. And so, kind of like if you imagine, like I said, again, going back to the dartboard, you can imagine the outer rim, so to speak, of that dartboard, you know, there's like just a little bit of information given about this prophecy, just a little bit of the conflict that's coming and of a redeemer that's going to defeat the enemy. And so that's probably one of my most, uh, I won't say it's the fate, my favorite, but it's like, it just shows you from the get go, God's plan was to redeem, not just, no, Israel, but the entire world. Israel kind of missed that mark, so to speak, because they just kind of thought it was only for themselves. But this was for all of humanity. This was because at this point, Adam and Eve, presumably, were the only humans on this planet. So God's saying that, hey, 
this is going to be for everybody. Good stuff. Great stuff. And, uh, you know, like Zach said, that's the earliest instance of a Messianic prophecy in the entire Old Testament. It's almost immediate. Mm-hmm. Right after the fall, it comes. And it's just enigmatic, just mysterious enough to where you couldn't go, ooh, he just said the word Messiah. But <laughs> right, right, looking right. back, it is so obvious. And you can just tell that, you know, he couldn't sit down and explain everything to Adam and Eve in an afternoon, but he had something up his sleeve the entire time. And, it, I mean, it's, it's a huge comfort for believers because, you know, they believe that God has full control over all of history and over all time. And that's confirmation right there in his word for those who believe it when they read it. Is you know, this is someone who's been orchestrating the story from the very beginning and already knew what he was gonna do in reaction to what they what they did when they fell. But um let's see, another example down the road that I think of right away is um I believe it's Micah five two, but uh basically this is the prophecy of uh Bethlehem. And for some reason, that was just what was coming to my mind was uh, this is Micah the prophet. His job is to kind of uplift Israel in the days around the Babylonian Babylon. <laughs> He's basically his job is to try to uplift Israel around the days of the Babylonian exile. And that's a separate story for another episode. But Micah is basically receiving this word from God. And all of a sudden, he just drops a bizarre piece of information. He says, in prophecy, he says, You, Bethlehem, Ephrata, you're the smallest among the people. A great king will come from you. And that's Micah 5, too. And it's just this small detail that's very, very quick to overlook. And it makes sense in both contexts. In the immediate context, he's talking about Bethlehem, this small town. Don't consider yourself too small lift your head up, God sees you as well. That helped to encourage them greatly, even in the days of the exile and beyond, when Micah wrote, back right as, as the Old Testament era was coming to a close. And, uh, fast forward to the story, that's the verse that's able to be used in Herod's court. When they try to decide where the birthplace of the Messiah would be, they point to Micah 5.2. You, Bethlehem Ephrata, don't consider yourself too small among Israel's cities. Out of you will come a mighty king. And as their other scriptures were testifying to a Messiah, they couldn't think of anything else, but this must be the birthplace of the Messiah. And truly, historically, that was the birthplace of Jesus of Nazareth. He was in there on a particular, at a particular time for a particular reason, because... Um, he basically was subject, his family was subject to a certain law of taxation, which sent them down to Bethlehem, where his father Joseph's line is from. It's the original birthplace of David the king. We can talk about David the king in his life as well, and the promise that was given to him, because that's a prophecy as well. But you have that promise that out of you, Bethlehem, will come a mighty king, and this peasant child who we have no right to know his name by all counts. And yet we know exactly who he is, who he was, and what he did because God has all these things in place so that the person who, was, who in, influenced history 
grand scale more than anyone else just so happened to come from Bethlehem in the same scriptures that are talking about the Messiah that we're going to keep discussing. Um, I would say probably, oh, if, if on the scale of, um, on the scale of one to 10, probably one, I don't say, I would never say that there's a prophecy that's like super important. Cause I think all the prophecies about Jesus are important in their own way to verify and testify. But one that definitely takes the cake um, is Isaiah 53 through 55. We won't quote the chapters, um, but it talks about a um, the the coming of a a um, a man, well, a, a, a man coming and delivering the people of Israel. Talking about also not just Israel, but talking about. Um, uh, the the entire people that believe in him uh, talked about like how uh, just kind of quote one phrase there like by his wounds we are healed. Um, I mean that that passage that portion of scripture that talks about the fact that you know you have the rest uh, restitutionary atonement right there talked about how um, Jesus or it doesn't say Jesus but how this this figure would come into our world um, and have no and have no issues, but being counted as though he was one of us, suffering for us, so that by his suffering he justifies the many. And you know, whenever you get this prophecy, you look at it. I mean, we're talking about. A, chap, a couple of chapters here, so it, it's very in-depth. Um, but you have this instance of where there's these uh, events that are taking place where, you know, and it's talking about how, yeah, God was pleased to crush, crush him so that he could then justify those who believed. Um, I mean, that right there, I mean, a lot of times, I mean, I've even heard of people quoting Isaiah 53 um, and 4 and 55, you know, quoting those and say, oh, that has to be New Testament because it depicts a suffering servant so well. They're like, it has to be New Testament. That has to be New Testament because that's clearly Jesus. And then it's like, actually, that's in Isaiah, Old Testament. I mean, you're looking at the 6th century, roughly, uh, B.C. I mean, there's, you know, ballpark there of 50-something years, depending on, you know, the secular or the conservative uh, uh, historian. But still, you're, you're seeing hundreds of years before Jesus' New Testament, and it's like, in your face, here is day that this is talking about if it's not Jesus, it's somebody set up just like Jesus. And it's like, it's it, it comes to the point where it's like, how much more has to be said about this pro, about this figure that is um, a game changer, that is literally changing and challenging 
all of our lives to uh to uh I'm trying to think of how to put it just challenging us all to uh to embrace that belief and and to turn from uh uh sin so to speak great stuff i can piggyback right off of isaiah 53 and 54 i mean they they'll go into such detail about you know this suffering servant this person who is going to suffer and die for the sake of the people and you know Zach can vouch for me here it it point it, it describes everything that Jesus went through mm-hmm. almost as if it was after the fact and it's thrown a lot of people off and another one that I can throw out there that really uh spooks me in a very good way is uh <laughs> it's one of the psalms it's uh, the hymn book of the old testament We've lost the tunes, but we still have all the lyrics to each of those songs. And Jesus actually quotes one while he hangs from the cross. Uh, he cries out in Aramaic, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And they say, well, he must be crying out for Elijah, prophet, to save him because his name, Eli, Eli. But they lost the fact that he was saying the word God. And so he was saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And on one hand, he is you know, truly calling out the fact that his father has spiritually forsaken him in that moment because he's taken on the sin of the world. This is a cutoff, uh, someone who has been with the father through eternity, someone who actually shared his very substance, his power, his omnipotence, his uh, omniscience, that God is in the father, he is in the son. For the first time on the cross in human form, he's experiencing what a sinner uh, experiences and cut off from that love, that holiness. And fellowship. So, that so fellowship. Yeah. And he is uh, quoting this, this, this psalm not just to express that, that angst, because that's true as well, but he's also uh, hinting at his own uh, victory in actually quoting that psalm. By qu- so, quoting Psalm 22, he's actually pointing to the fact that Psalm 22 points to him. Because if you go and read Psalm 22, the, that's the first verse. Jesus only quotes verse 1, but it keeps going. It's, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it describes crucifixion almost to a T. They've pierced my hands and my feet. They hang me up before the people and make me a mockery. And so this, this just the the the... The whole tension in the psalm, very, very closely describing crucifixion, and yet this psalm was written in a time in history where crucifixion was never even heard of. Nailed in the hands and the feet was actually totally unknown at the time when this was written. Yet Jesus thinks to quote the very beginning verse of the psalm while he hangs. And so this is an instance where he is in the middle of mortal agony and he thinks to quote a scripture off the top of his head that points to the fact that this was planned from the very beginning knew from the time that he was you know for for as long as he was able to understand his own mission from his human perspective he knew that it was his destiny to be pierced in the hands of the feet he knew it was his destiny to be hung up made a mockery and he would read that psalm and I don't. We don't know how exactly he knew everything he knew because struggling that that dual nature between God and humanity. But 
he would read that psalm growing up, and at some point it, he realized that it was talking about him and the the fact that he was meant to do what he did. And and, so, yeah. and I, f <clears throat> I forget if we've talked about this or not, so we may have, or I may have um, just known this from somewhere else, but the reason why that was so critical or why this was important was because back then the um the bible or, or the old testament didn't have bible verses or mm -hmm. chapters or numbers or anything like that um as far as like identifiers and so jewish people they would quote the first verse as kind of like saying you know chapter chapter one verse whatever um and so that was so anybody there at the crucifixion would have heard jesus say that and they would immediately know oh that's psalm 22 am i remembering that correctly like, i think that, so. that's that's how they that's how they communicated what part oh, of yeah. the scripture yeah but yeah because that was a culture they didn't have any problem with um being it out they had no problem with uh Summarizing what they heard, uh, paraphrasing what they heard, connecting two ideas together, even if they're in two different points of Scripture. Paul does that all the time. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there were two groups. There were those who totally misunderstood what he said, and then there were the other half that were probably a little stunned in that moment because of what he was saying. And it was Jewish culture back then that you were, you were encouraged to memorize Scripture. If you wanted to be a, a rabbi, especially, you had to memorize all of it. Yeah, literally all of it. We're not talking <laughs> yeah. about we're not talking about you know, five or ten verses like you know like nowadays. Like if you get ten verses and you can quote them all the time, it's like man, we're on fire. <laughs> yeah. No, this is the entire Old Testament books or, or scrolls, like lot, <laughs> a lot, the whole thing. And so for them to even, for, for any, any one of the, the religious leaders at the foot of the cross to hear Jesus open his mouth and start to quote this, it probably would have just made them angrier because they knew exactly what was in that verse. <laughs> and this thing that was written centuries ago, and it's like literally describing the way that you were about to die as if, you know, he, as if you wrote it yourself as you're dying. I mean, just the, I don't understand how you could hear that and not have the hairs on the back of your neck stand on end if you're guilty of being part of that group. And and, and just kind of like kind of going back to what Robert, what Robert will say. Rip, rip, ribbit <laughs> wing wing. My bad. <laughs> what Robert was saying um, about how like even before crucifixion existed, you know, talking about this prophecy. And, and I think and we, maybe this even should have been said in the beginning, I don't know, but a lot of times, like, you know, when we hear prophecy, we talk about prophecy, especially, like, in, in modern days times, it's like, it's like Mo Master Yoda, the prophecy, the future is always in motion. as hogwash. Absolute hogwash. The future is not in motion. Um, when God says something's going to happen, it will happen, even if it seems impossible, even if at the time there's something that makes absolutely no sense. Now, I mean, there might be a, a misinterpretation on our end. That's, that is a possibility. But in God, for instance, says in the end times, there will be a man 
all the Antichrist that will rise up and he will dissuade, you know, sway many to fall away from the faith. That means in the last days there will be a figure that will rise up. And it sounds crazy, you know, like a lot of us believers knew in the faith or whatever. They're like, I don't see that being possible. I don't see that happening. Mm-hmm. Um, then it's like, in reality, it's going to happen. I mean, just to kind of go back, I mean, this is, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Um, but that, that's one thing that we as, as believers, we can look to Old Testament and we can see these prophecies, we can see these promises that take place. And, and there's some, that like kind of like talking about the future, and this is where kind of the Jewish people got their idea that the uh, would be a political leader. Um, talks about like how he would over he, he would overthrow. There are portions, there are prophecies in the Old Testament that talks about the Messiah overturning governments and forms of government. And uh, as the way Christians understand that, we talk we would call that the. Um, end times whenever the millennial kingdom uh, begins, whenever Jesus comes into our world after the resurrection and he basically throws down Satan uh, for a thousand years and all those things happen and he basically sets up a theocracy on earth again. He is actually there on planet earth governing the nations that exist at that time for the thousand years. Now, again, that sounds far-fetched, that sounds impossible, but that's the thing about prophecy. Even if it sounds easy right now, it will come to pass. It's not a, something that might come about if all the, the uh, actors come in correctly. It will take place. It is a done deal. It's uh, one thing just kind of going back to there's a, there's a talk in the uh, book of Revelation that talks about the Euphrates River drying up. And, you know, and it's crazy. But, you know, if you, you could actually Google this, NASA has confirmed that you, the Euphrates River and the Tigris are both drying up. It's slowly, it's a gradual shrinking they have proven it is it is is scientifically verified that the Euphrates River is drying up. And guess where that's in? That that is actually prophesized in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation hat was written, you know, just kind of given uh the a New Testament New Testament uh reference here, was written around 90 AD. So you're talking about two millennia later. This thing is like verifying that this is actually going to happen. This is going to take place. It's a done deal. Wow. Nice. So let me ask. Let me ask you guys this. So, and I'm just asking, just kind of my own curiosity to see, um, you know, kind of what your insights are into this. Um, back then, um. I mean, obviously, you had all of these uh, Jewish scholars uh, who were experts in Jewish law and experts in the scripture at the time. 
when Jesus was alive and even when he was crucified, I mean, these were these were some smart people um, mm-hmm. yeah. in, in, in a traditional sense, uh, kind of ignorant and others. But um, could they not see that it's like what you were saying, if someone even fulfilled eight of these prophecies, it would have been just beyond any comprehension of what's statistically probable. Um, could they not see at the time that, hey, um, especially towards the end when Jesus was uh, being crucified and all that, uh, couldn't they have started putting some of this together of, of, of hey, this, this might be real? Or, or were they just so either afraid of the implication or so... I guess, angry that they were still under Roman rule that they just chose to ignore it? Oh, that, that's a great question. I think, I think both are true. I think there were people in that day and time that started to click for them, mm-hmm. and, and those were the people that later became believers. You know, whenever, because this, we're talking about the crucifixion here, so at the time, at the time, you know, uh, they uh, they um, didn't believe necessarily, but they, like you're saying, they kind of put some stuff together and say, "Whoa, this is kind of getting weird." And then, three days later, you know, Christ arose from the dead, and then those people who are starting to put things together really put things together mm-hmm, uh, by mm-hmm. the power of the Holy Spirit, you know, and and they they became believers. And then I think also, it, I think it would just be as, just as easily true. Like if, you know, there's some people out there who saw all the things that he did, but he did not throw off the Roman government like they believe the Messiah should do. And that is the reason why they said, no, Jesus couldn't be the Messiah. And that's actually reason why many of the Jewish people still to this day who are actually believing practicing Jews deny Jesus being the Messiah because he didn't do what they said that he's supposed to do. He, they didn't overthrow the government of that time, so therefore he couldn't have been a true Messiah, the, the, the true Messiah. Yeah, on and their well, terms, yeah. Yes. Not right, God's, yes. yeah. Yeah, and I, and I think and I think that's that's the the pivotal one right there. You have your perce- uh, perceived ideas of what you think the Messiah would do, and then you had God's plan. And, and I think that people who were believers, they submitted themselves to God's plan, even if they didn't fully understand what all it meant. You know, because a lot of these people they had an understanding of the Old Testament things of that nature but they didn't have a complete understanding of those things yeah as of that yeah. time but they they walked in faith and said okay well you've done something miraculous here lord it's clearly you're moving my idea of the messiah overthrowing rome mm-hmm. I must have just got that wrong that you know and be willing to embrace that and follow god's plan over their interpretations Oh yeah, and and Zach did so well. There's not too much for me to add, but um, I would love to add a thought or two to his first statement that you know it's both and. Um, there's actually there are actually hints in scripture that the people who 
opposed him had some kind of idea that something was going on, at least at first. Mm-hmm. And I would actually argue that they might have been like Pharaoh in Egypt. Anyone out there who hears me say that reference and not explain it, I apologize. Uh, you have Google, but <laughs> we can only cover so much. But uh, basically what Pharaoh was known to do was he hardened his heart and just refused to believe it. What he actually did was, it was kind of psychological. He convinced himself that this God of Moses could not possibly perform miracles despite everything Moses saying coming true. But uh, uh, it actually suggests, well, John 3 is what's coming to my mind. Nicodemus is one of, not only one of the great council, but he's one of, the four wealthiest, most influential people in all Jerusalem. He actually goes and he sits down with Jesus in the middle of the night. His statement is actually really telling. It, he, he uses the word we, not I, but we plural. He says, we know that you've come from God because no one can do these things unless God has his hand on you. And what's interesting, though, is even though we know this, Nicodemus went to him by night People think it's very likely he went because of his uh, fear and shame in the moment of everyone else's opinion around him, all of his peers on the council. He's the only one that mm-hmm. he's the only one who saw it, recognized it, and was willing to do something about it. He saw the train coming, and he's the only little frog in the road that managed to jump out of the way of the truck because they were too content to sit where they were. And there were so many reasons they chose to harden their hearts. One, uh, I think, uh, this is kind of my imagination more than anything, but I'm putting that disclaimer on it. I'm not a, on on here claiming stuff, but I personally think a good deal of it could have been also Jesus taking so much glory away from themselves. They loved being the religious people, the true experts of Scripture. And here was this unschooled, dirty man in their minds was on the lower uh, one of the lower ladder rungs of society doing them in their interpretation of scripture plus everything we've said about him not being the physical political messiah they wanted plus his <laughs> willingness his, his tendency he wasn't just willing to do it he was prone to do it he would call them out for their hypocrisy in front of everybody hmm. he would say I, I see your hearts You've spent your whole lives studying this word. You've spent your whole lives enjoying the hellos and the pats on the back from the people for being the religious leaders of the day. Yet you've proven through your words, through your actions, through the very hearts that I see inside of you that you 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 are actually very, very far from the God you've studied so much about. Hmm. It really got under their skin. And for all those things, it's not be it, it's interesting because on the surface, when you read the gospel stories, they opposed Jesus because of what he does. You healed someone on the Sabbath. How dare you break the law of God? And they never stop to think, well, if he's really who he claims to be, this is his law to break. Mm-hmm. This is something he wrote. Assuming that it was against the law to do that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, sometimes they just made it up. It was their own law <laughs> yeah. that that he supposedly broke. And And also, you know, his tendency to heal people. I mean, oh, no, heaven forbid. This man must be a demon. Look, he's casting out demons. He He's obviously demonic. I mean, they never even consider he's probably doing this by God's own power. Yeah. And it was never the deeds themselves. It was the opinion that they already decided they had of Jesus before they saw these things. 
So when by the time he started doing anything, they were already looking for something to blame him for. It's basically one of those situations in public life, and everybody knows what we talk about is depending on something you stand for or an opinion you have that might not be popular on both sides or any side of a political field or a social standing, uh, something that you stand for in a community, if there's a local dispute, I mean, just anything, it kind of puts a, 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 uh, a bullseye on your back. All of a sudden, you can't do anything right. You start to criticize the way you walk, the way you talk, the way you chew your food. This became Jesus because of the what they had already decided was wrong with him before he had done or said much of anything based on the few things that they had seen in the very beginning. Yeah, like you, oh, you forgave this woman who was caught in adultery. Who are you to forgive people's sins? Which is exactly the point Jesus was saying. Yes, you know, only God has the the, the ability to forgive sins. Hello, me, I'm God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I honestly, we could do a whole episode on that one on the on that one event. Is yeah, the, the man on the mat. He, he's saying, uh, you know, they're saying, "Oh, you're a blasphemer. You're claiming you can forgive sins." He's like, "Yes, I'm claiming to forgive sins." Which is easier to tell him that or to tell him just to walk? <laughs> the dude gets up and they're like, "Oh, we don't believe it. We didn't see anything." <laughs> like, really. He literally just told this guy to get up and walk just to prove to you that he had the power to do it. Oh, yeah. They're like, oh, no, it's a demon. It's a demon. <laughs> it's, an il- it's an illusion. It's, it's a yeah. trick of the light. Yeah. <laughs> Smokes and mirrors. Dad an accomplice. Uh, he's in on the act, but, I mean, you see this, and you just see these, uh, just to wrap it back around to the point of the episode tonight, was the prophecies of Jesus were read and studied lore by the people who condemned him the hardest and because of their own hearts they refused to see what was right before them literally in black and white right there in ink yeah and 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 that's one thing that i would like to say to challenge people as well let robert take back over um but uh, we we paraphrased and butchered some prophecies talking about them i mean it's like it doesn't do this Unless you actually like open up Isaiah 53 and just like read it and then the 54 and 55 and read those things and go, wow, that's 600 years, seven, you know, 650, six, 700 years before Jesus even walked the earth. It's talking about this guy, you know, and it's, it's just amazing and i mean again prophecy isn't some how pie in the sky hopefully all these factors no it's something that is written in stone that will take place maybe not in the time that we think it should happen or in the way we think it should happen kind of like how the jewish people thought the messiah was going to overturn government first and then do some other stuff you know, we might we might mess up those interpretations, but the reality of it is the prophecies that Jesus and, and that God will do these things, that these things will come about, these things will take place in the end times. Those things are going to happen, whether it's in our lifetime, our children's lifetimes, or there at some point those things will come to pass and the age will end. 
And for those of you listening who may be on the fence of Christianity or may not be believers and, and you're just listening, like we're not judging um, the the Jewish people, especially back then, for not believing. I mean, uh, just think about um, Zach and Robert. I know myself. I can name plenty of times um, from my own personal life how many times I've attributed my own idea of god um like if i'm needing something or i'm wanting something to happen in life i i see an injustice and i'll be like you know well if you know i can i if i had god's power i would have taken care of that or you know i would have done things differently and so we attribute our own limited mortal concept of what we think god should be and uh and i mean even as christians you know we're guilty of doing that from time to time mm. and so that right there uh just kind of spits in the face of 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 god and jesus because we're basically saying well you know i have it figured out more than you or my plan or my timing is better than yours and i mean i think that's just the height of human arrogance and uh, uh hubris yeah. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah, because I've thought about this since I have become a believer about a decade ago, and or more, and some change. I'm convinced now more than ever that you know, no matter what era or what people group Jesus appeared to when he came to Earth, they all would have reacted to him the same way because of the same prejudices and the same sinful ideas in their hearts. Oh, absolutely. Oh yeah. Absolutely. I, oh, absolutely. I remember. Um, and the Passion of the Christ movie came out with Mel Gibson. Portrayal of the Jewish religious leaders, you know, they threw the charge of anti-Semitism at him because of the way it was portrayed. But, you know, there are so many things to, you know, address about that one. Um, Jesus himself was Jewish. Everybody in that context, except the Romans, they all happened to be Jewish. There was just a Jewish culture, a Jewish world. These were human beings. Mm -hmm regardless of what their brand was, you and I would have had the same reactions. Um, I've often asked, you know, if Jesus showed up in my time, what would I have done with him? It's a scary thought because my faith is all in hindsight. And I mean, it's just human nature. People are people everywhere. Mm-hmm. Everywhere you go, a person is a person, and a person does what a person is going to do. Especially mm-hmm. whenever it's something they want to do versus what they should do. You know, I mean, no, no, no Christian is above that. Like we even, we even have the word and we know better and we should do things that we know we should not do or wait, we end up doing the things that we know we should not do instead of doing the things that we know we should do. Yes. <laughs> Try exactly. to say that five times. <laughs> and honestly, that's not just the condition of the first century Jewish world when Jesus walked on it. This is, Spiritually speaking, at the heart level, where you can't see it, where there's no historical story behind it, it's just the state of our own hearts, we'll actually see the same situation. It's, we are a people, globally, all throughout time, we are people who would see it, say, we know, we know that God has his hand on him, we know the things that we've seen, we know the things that we've witnessed, we know what times we're living in, let's kill him. In today's world, that... Let's hypothetically, let's say, you know, Jesus did not um, come when he did uh, back 2000 years ago. Let's say that life had carried on. We're in the civilization we are now. 
and we have the technology, we have the money, we have the lifestyle that we have now. Uh, imagine any of you guys listening, or either myself, you, Robert, um, Zach. Um, mm-hmm. Imagine you're sitting at home. Um, you know, you're in your air conditioned house. You've got your computer, your iPhone, all of this stuff around you, and some homeless guy just showing up at your door um, and just saying, "Hey." follow me leave all of this behind uh, leave mm-hmm. your families behind and just go live a nomadic lifestyle with me <laughs> and um i would say that it was actually probably um easier to convince people back then than it would be now i i think we would be so much weaker uh against human temptation um than than what they were yeah i mean because I, I i think you're right because I mean, in the time that they, yeah, there was some comforts, but nowhere near the comforts that we have now, and and to willingly give those things up, they either travel on foot, or or even travel on foot and have no home, call your own. I think that that would be like, yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not gonna do that. Or, or you know, seeing like you're saying, this this ruffian guy who may not smell the greatest, you know, and he's like, "Come follow me, I'm I'm God." <laughs> it's like, wait, what? No, huh? <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. Because I mean, that that's where you know, just going back to the first century, that's where miracles would have to come in because, uh, like you said, especially now especially nowadays with the world we're in and how comfortable things are, and especially with all the false messiahs that we've seen in our own lifetimes. Oh, think yeah. Of like David Koresh and all the ways that that has tainted the reputation. And there were false messiahs in Jesus' day. People were rising up against Rome and getting slaughtered because they claimed to be the messiah. Follow me. Mm-hmm. And so a homeless man shows up at my house, and I'm just being transparent here. I'm not even trying to be funny, but it probably will be. But a, a homeless man shows up at my door and says, follow me. I'm the Lord God Almighty. I'd be on the phone trying to, you know, send this man <laughs> to a safe, happy room. He'll get three meals a day and a shot in the arm. And, you know, just make sure this guy gets help. And, you know, in their culture, that's probably the context of, you know, what Jesus were, Jesus, some of the people who heard Jesus were trying to do for him. I mean, we know for from Scripture, it says plainly that his own family tried to do that. Yeah, the other, they visited, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, you're good. The other sons of Mary, his brothers, they're like, we need to get him out of here. He's, he's lost his Looney Tunes. <laughs> his Fruit Loops are out in, the, out in the street. Yeah, the cheese has slid off his cracker. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the goats come untied. And, <laughs> but then he would give sight to a blind man. It's like, oh, wow. Um um, and it's um, also and it's also an important note. I mean, this is a completely side note. But many of his own half brothers uh, became believers and involved in the church and the early church within the first century. I mean, so it's like, <laughs> I mean, could you imagine uh, one your brother saying that he's the Messiah, this and that? Yeah. Um, and then you're trying to like rebuke him and correct him, and then he raises from the dead. <laughs> I mean, like, hello, remember that time I stole your shoelaces? Yeah, I'm sorry about that, by the way, God. <laughs> I mean, I mean, 
That would have been an interesting conversation. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry I put gum in your hair. My bad. <laughs> yeah. But... Hey, well, I think we've got a few minutes left here. Um, we're we're closing in on an hour. Are there any uh, last minute uh, prophecies you guys want to go into, or anything to kind of start landing the plane? I've got one, and it's actually it's a prophecy and a promise for now. Uh, Zach's covered, you know, the future aspect of it because as we look back and we can tell historically and mathematically that it's almost absurdly unlikely Jesus was anything other than the Messiah from where I'm sitting. It also gives us hope because we have other prophecies in there that have not yet come to pass, and we can look ahead with hope that these things are going to come. But I'm not just talking about Revelation again like, like Zach did to wrap it around to what he's talking about. You know, where we're sitting, we can look backwards and ahead. I see that in Isaiah 9. We preach that at Christmas mm -hmm. when we're looking behind, but we don't really want to preach the rest of it. It's pretty powerful, and I think it's a phenomenal way to end the podcast. I'm not looking at the text right now. It's just off the top of my head, so consider it a so, paraphrase. So, yeah, so if anybody who's a Bible scholar is like looking at us going, yes, they've butchered those prophecies, <laughs> we acknowledge that. We yes. acknowledge it. Yes, I'm just thankful I didn't throw Ronald McDonald in there to shock people a little bit. Well, you just did. Yeah, that's my sense of humor. I did that on purpose just so this would be on the podcast. But uh, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh, straight straight face, no smiling, no giggling. But uh, yeah, to, to close this out, and, and all jokes aside, Isaiah 9 is, uh, oh man, it's so powerful. It starts with the Christmas verse. That's come to pass the virgin will give birth to a child then it goes on to describe this child at christmas we focus on the birth of the child and we leave it be but the child grew and died and changed everything and set us free and there's a promise in there there's a poem that makes it so obvious it's not talking about just another person this is not just another samson with a strong arm or a David with powerful faith. It's not just another Elijah who's willing to stand up. This is something else. This is something divine. Because the poem says that they will call him several different names, and it starts to list those names. It says the government will be on his shoulders. He will take care of it all. He will uphold it all. It will be his forever, and we'll bow down and be thankful for it. And it says that he'll be called Everlasting Father, Mighty Counselor, Prince of Peace. We celebrate the fact that his birth, his life, his death changed the way culture sees things. Uh, ancient pagan religion went from those physical heroes, Hercules beating the snot out of a lion. Now we have, as our God, a, a God who is willing to kneel down and become humble, become nothing for us. And so we have a God who is willing to bring peace rather than more violence. And so that's that's who we that's who we serve. That's who we worship, and that's who we get to look forward to coming someday to reclaim the world. Prince of Peace is coming to finally silence all the chaos that you see as soon as you turn on the news. And that is the great hope of prophecy. It's not just something to fascinate us, or uh, like a couple of Lord of the Rings nerds picking apart the details of Middle Earth. It's so much more than that. Although we do do that. We do do that, but that's <laughs> not on here. <laughs> yes, we're, I mean, we work also, but we occasionally digress into fantasy stuff. <laughs> Indeed. 
and as people who do that, we I, we can honestly say that the, these prophecies have so much more for us than that. It hits home so much more than just the fiction that entertains us. It's not just something to elevate our thinking. A lot of people in the church world do treat theology that way. It's a way to puff up their own knowledge. It's just something they can study to be a geek with it. They never let it really touch their own hearts and change the way they live in this world, knowing he's coming back. That's the hope that I want to leave with as we talk about prophecies and close it until next time. And uh, real quick, um, let's say for our listeners out there, let's say there's a listener who isn't a believer, or maybe we've got a newer believer or someone who's just not that versed in the Bible. Uh, what are some resources if people wanted to look up more of these prophecies and maybe look up the locations where they're found? A little bit more discussion. Um, well, honestly, um, I I know there's authors out there who um, have written lots of books. I believe there's um, a case for Christ by Lee Strobel. I believe that's one of them that kind of goes over some of the stuff we've talked about a little bit in detail. I believe also, and and Robert might have other resources, but I mean, just to honest, if you typed in in your in your Google search, if you typed in eight prophecies, Christians, you know, point to Jesus or or something like that. I mean. Just, I mean now, be careful with that because it might pull up anything under the sun. Jesus but, was yeah. a lizard person in the Illuminati. But at the same time, I mean, you know, Google's pretty good about filtering out some stuff. So, I mean, there is that as a tool. And Robert, if you got anything. Oh, yeah. Um, there are a couple of resources I'd love to throw out there. And it's on t- opposite ends of the spectrum, even though it's by the same man. It is a phenomenal uh, Bible defender named Josh McDowell. The little book, this is literally a stocking stuffer if people just want to get in and out very quickly. It's a phenomenal introduction. Josh McDowell, it's a book called More Than a Carpenter. The whole thing cover to cover is about the identity of Jesus, and he covers the prophecies in in great detail without going so deep it loses you. The opposite end of the spectrum, if people want to go out and rent, buy, or check out an encyclopedia, uh, same author, Josh McDowell, but it's called Evidence for Christianity. There's a, a sister copy called Evidence that Demands a Verdict. It's literally like taking the reference edition off of the shelf of the library and flipping through it. And If anyone wants to splurge on that, they've got enough resources for almost a lifetime. But uh, I, I would love to throw those two out there. More than a carpenter... And evidence that demands a verdict. Two very, very different books and regarding size, but they're written by the same man with the same heart. Excellent. Well, hey, Robert, Zach, I really appreciate you guys uh, talking to us tonight. Uh, this has been a great episode. I know I learned a lot. Uh, what can we expect uh, coming up on the next episode? Um, unless I'm mistaken, I believe we are planning to jump into the canon of Scripture. That's literally uh, where you hop yep. into a weapon and get blasted across several acres. <laughs> but, yeah, that was weird. <laughs> yeah, that's not what it means for those out there who don't know what that word means. Uh, I couldn't resist. But uh, we will literally be talking about the books themselves, Genesis, Exodus, da 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 and how do we know that the right books are in the right place. Okay, perfect. 
Well, thank you guys again. Uh, we really appreciate it uh, to all of our listeners out there. Thank you for joining us again for this episode. And uh, yeah, definitely stick around. Uh, we'll shoot some big artillery on the next episode. Right. Fire at will. Not really at will. Just not towards the neighbors. No. <laughs> <laughs>